Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Well, good morning. It's a good day to be together and study the Bible. Let's get to open our books to the Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We just began, and there's Jackie. Hi, Jackie. Good to see you. I was just asking about your mom. She's doing better. She's doing better. Great. Good, good. Praise the Lord. Glad to hear that. I went by the hospital to see her that day, and she was. they said she was in some kind of procedure, so oh. I missed her. But I wrote her a note. I hope she got it. But, yeah, uh, she really liked it. She good. had her L3 semen in it. Wow, yeah. That's, I knew that it was a back issue. Well, yeah, it was like well. a compress. Yeah. Something. Well, thanks for being here today, and tell her we're praying for her. Okay, thank you. Well, Everybody, uh, great to be with you. First Thessalonians chapter 1. This is just part 2 of chapter 1. Uh, so before we start, if you have your prayer cards, let's go ahead and, and uh, begin with our prayer before the study of Scripture. Let us pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father who is from everlasting and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Well, we, let's look where we left off. I told you I wanted to, I wanted to touch base on one word out of chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. We read through the first ten verses, which is the first chapter, and... Uh, only went through the first three, but I didn't really get time to talk about this idea of hope. The Greek word for hope that is used here is this word hupomone, hupomone. And why do I always put Greek words on the board? I don't always do it, but there's reasons why sometimes it's not so that we just have the pride of saying, hey, I know a word in Greek. It's that Greek is a unique language of all the languages in the world. I believe it's important to understand that 
In God's providence, he knew when was the right time to do everything. He still does, of course. And he gave us the gospel. He gave us the New Testament. He gave us the early church, the early faith of Christ, the Christ-centered Christian gospel in Greek for a reason. Because it's a language unlike any other that has uh, words that are so expressive and full of meaning and much, much different than English. I mean, if the gospel had been first given in English, boy, it just wouldn't have nearly been as full and meaningful. Just like that we've proved that over and over when we talk about the study of the word love. You know, in English, there's just one word, love. So many different words in, in Greek. So this, this concept of hupomone, this hope, look back at verse 3, and we'll pick up there where we left off, and it says that after he told them, well, verse 2, I'll just read it again from 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Steadfastness of hope. This word hope, so we in English we have this word steadfastness there. What do some of yours say? Your translations, I realize everybody endurance. doesn't endurance. read the same. Endurance. endurance. Okay. Enduring hope. Enduring hope. Or does yours even use the word hope there, Mark? Yeah. Enduring, okay. yeah. Endurance inspired by hope. Endurance inspired by hope. See how many words it takes to get this one feeling. Right. Yeah. This idea of hupomone in Greek is the idea of waiting patiently in hope, but you're enduring great trial in the meantime. It's not an easy hope. It's not a fun hope. It's a tough hope. Okay, It's not one that people would just easily, easily find. You know, sometimes we can find hope in something when, when things are bright and cheerful and a good outlook, and boy, we've got hope, you know? But when we're down and when things are hard and when things are tough and there's great trial and there's great persecution, it's much more difficult to have hope and to, to have that kind of steadfast, enduring, patient hope. And that is what he is saying, Paul is saying here, the apostle is saying, I see that in you. And the, the report that Timothy brought back when he brought back the report from the people in, in the Thessalonian church he that caused Paul to want to write this letter, that that report was, you're hopeful. This is good. You're waiting. You're patiently enduring. And we'll see as we go through the book the things that they're patiently enduring and waiting for. And, and we'll talk even more about those as it unfolds. But I didn't want to lose this thought that they are definitely a hopeful people. Their hope is based on, as we if you remember back to the overview the overriding theme here, uh, their hope is based on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second coming, as we would know it, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great, the Greek word we learned in the beginning was parousia, the parousia. That means the second coming again, Okay, the coming again of Christ. And uh, every single chapter ends with a, a, a mention of the fact that Christ is coming again. So they were living in this very present hope that all this in trials that they're enduring uh, was going to be worth it. And remember, they're a, they're a brand new church. 
They're only a few months old. It's a brand new faith to these, mostly Greek, although some Jews we know came into the faith because Paul began studying with the Jews there in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. And in that context, in just a few short months, they're already feeling great persecution. And all indicators are that it's great persecution. So... But that was mostly from the Jews, wasn't it? It it is from the Jews, that's right. Mostly from the Jews in the community. But remember what the Jews did. The Jews stirred up the whole community. So it has a Gentile persuasion to it, too. The Jews got the whole community, the scripture said, when we read back in the book of Acts. Got the whole community and riled up about them. So Christians, and remember, this is part of the Roman Empire. Okay, This is in Greece, but it's part of the Roman Empire. These are subjects of the Roman Empire. And the Christians, uh, one of the lies that was spread about the Christians that made their life so difficult was that they, number one, didn't they, they were bad subjects because they didn't allow Caesar to be their Lord. They wouldn't accept that and worship him as Lord. But number two, they, some of the other lies that began to be spread about Christians was that they were cannibals because in their... Sacred, ser- secret, sacred ceremonies. They would, the the lies were spread. You know, the secret, sacred ceremonies. They would eat the body and the blood, and all kinds of lies were told. You know, we obviously we're talking about Holy Communion, the body and blood of Jesus, and we laugh at that. We it seems so crazy, but back then, this is the type of lie that was spread about them, and nobody'd heard of Christians before. This was a new thing. Um, so there there were all kinds of problems and trials and persecutions that they had to endure. And in in the context of this, um, I have, uh, let's see, I want to look at my notes here for, for something that I think is very important. Um, when we look at that verse also, going forward, he's going to talk in verse four about their being chosen about their being chosen. But you'll notice in verse 3, he talks about God uh, having, uh, remembering them before God for your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. That was all a part of last week's lesson when we said those three things, faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. We don't want to forget that. Their Christian faith was a labor of love and was centered in hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he commends them and he begins to tell them, he says, For we know, in verse 4, For we know, brethren, beloved by God, throws that little beloved by God, reminding them how much God loves them, that they are ch- that he has chosen you. He's chosen you. Carries on into verse 5. For our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So let's stop and think through this idea of, uh, I put this word on the board, um, ek, ek, it's a little two-letter Greek word, ek, ek, ek. And we would use that in English, that would be a prepositional phrase like the word uh, of, okay, okay. But it's not, when we, as we talk about this idea of their being chosen, we're going to talk about what they're chosen for. 
it's not that they're chosen uh, from the world or from uh, through the world, if you will, but out of. The key is this thought of being out of. That's going to become real important as we begin to talk about their struggling and this idea of their uh, hope in, in, in their hope and endurance through these struggles. Okay, this idea of out of the connotation here is that you'll see this word used several times in our study of Thessalonians. This little ek, this idea of out of. And if we're not careful, sometimes we get the the feeling that um, that God is pulling them through, okay, instead of raising them out, because here they are enduring through all of this. So we'll come, we'll come full circle. We'll come back to that as we study. But I just wanted to throw that in there. So as we think about their being chosen, I want to. Sometimes this is called the doctrine of election. Some of Does anyone have a version where it says you're elect? My RSV says chosen. What, what do some of yours say there in verse 4? Chosen. Yours just says chosen. What does yours say back there? Okay, so King James says election. Very good. Anybody else say elect? No, okay. This is a very important word here. This is a very important thought. This, there's, there is running all through Scripture this idea of the doctrine of election. The early church began to formulate and teach a doctrine of election. The Apostle Paul's writings are foremost in the thought of this doctrine of election. So what we're trying to say when the, when the King James used the word election, your election by God, what were they elected to? Why were they elected? Who was elected? How were they elected? All kinds of questions come up. Who, you know, who are these elect? Why are they elect? Um, this is carried on for centuries through Christianity, the last several centuries especially. Before the Protestant Reformation, so that means before the year 1600 or 15, the middle of the 16th century is what I meant to say, the middle 1500s. Before that, so for the first 1,500 years of Christianity on earth, there really wasn't great controversy around this doctrine or concept of election in Christ. But since the Protestant Reformation, there's been great controversy around this concept of who are the elect and how are they elect and what does it mean to be elect. So I want to spend a little bit of time because Paul's talking to them about this for a reason. Remember, one of the things that we study the scripture for isn't just to understand what it meant then, but what can it mean to us today? And one of the first and foremost rules of Bible study, it can't mean something totally different to us today than it did to them. So as we discover what this doctrine of election meant to them, it will mean the same thing to us. So it's important for us to figure out what it means. So when we think about the theme of being chosen by God, What kind of stories in the Bible do you think of? When you think about the theme of being chosen by God. Anything come to your mind? David. David? Okay, King King David. Okay. And why does he come to your mind? Because he wasn't the normal. Wasn't the likely choice. Likely choice. Very good, very good. Yeah. Any others come to your mind? The apostles. Noah. Okay. What's that? 
apostles. The apostles, they were chosen, weren't they? Moses. Moses, yeah. Moses didn't seem like a likely choice, and he didn't want to be a choice either, did he? <laughs> he tried to get out he of it. He tried to get out of the choice. And actually, Jonah. That's right. Jonah, okay. So you see, this theme of being chosen by God is all through Scripture. It's definitely all through the Old Testament. But the, the idea of being, ch- and so it carries over into the New Testament, the idea of being chosen goes even deeper into this thought of God has chosen a specific people for a specific purpose. And we see that beginning with the story of Abraham. When we see the story of Abraham back in Genesis, God is now going to carve out a people that will be from the seed of Abraham. Yes, Ken. Modern times, would you consider Billy Graham as being chosen? Well, I would consider, not just because it's modern times, uh, I would say he was definitely chosen because he was called. Definitely. I think I'm chosen because I'm called. But I think you're chosen because you're called. Okay? So it's not just the guys who are apostles or ministers or preachers who have a call. I think we all have a call. And we all are chosen. And we're going to talk about why we're all elect here this morning. I think we all are. Okay? But let's go back. Let's go way back into I, w- I want to read to you something from the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to look back at Deuteronomy. Um, this is in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. Now we know here we have um, Moses talking to the people. And in verse 6, I'll begin reading in verse 6, Moses says these words. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God chose you to be a people for himself, special above all the nations on the face of the earth. The Lord did not prefer nor choose you because you were more in number than all the other nations, for you are the least of all the nations. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath he swore to your fathers, that's going back to Abraham, that's talking about the oath to Abraham to make a nation out of him. Okay, he says, I'm in the middle of verse 8 now. Because he would keep the oath he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know the Lord your God. This God is a faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with those who hate him. He will repay them to their face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments and ordinances and these judgments I command to you today. Now, first of all, who's Moses talking to? He's talking to the children of Israel, okay? The children of Israel who are the gathered people of God. They brought out of bondage from Egypt, okay? Now, he is talking to them in a way that he is reminding them that they were chosen by God. This is really where this idea of the doctrine election begins. God is now 
elected for himself a people from out of the world. And why did he choose the, we would call them the Hebrews in those times, why did he choose the Hebrew people to be the elect? Why not the Egyptians who were there? All, they ruled the world at that time. Why not the whoever? Why, why do you think he chose the Hebrew people? Because of Abraham. Okay, because first of all, he made a promise to Abraham, and this says he's going to keep it. Okay. Why Abraham? See, we can always ask that question, why, can't we? We can just keep asking it. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna learn the answer this morning. Is it because he had a covenant because Abraham and the ancestry there? Yes, yes, it is because of the covenant. What I'm gonna, what I'm gonna lead you to this morning is why the covenant with these particular people. Now he says right there, his first, the first answer that we should gather. He just answers it right there. He said, "The Lord didn't choose you because you were the greatest." He didn't choose you because you were the biggest. He chose you because he loves you. Now, does that mean God doesn't love the other people? No. No, it doesn't mean that at all. So, because we know God loves everyone. But it says, clearly, not everyone's going to love him back. His covenant is going to be with those who will be faithful. Who will be faithful to him. And God knew that the people... We call Hebrews, the lineage of Abraham, would be a faithful people. Now, is foreknowledge. foreknowledge, yes. I'm going to come back to that word, Dorothy. That's a big word, the idea of foreknowledge. Now, the Hebrew people weren't always faithful, were they? They, they just weren't. I mean, the story of the Old Testament is mostly from this point on. I mean, from once they... You get past the, the first five books of the Bible, you've got a story of a people that were continually breaking their covenant with God. Rednecks. Rednecks. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. If, well, I don't know the definition of redneck, so I don't want to offend anybody here. But, but you know what I mean. They're just not. They're stubborn. They're disobedient. They continually break. And no matter how God blesses them, they still break the law. Now, through that all, through all of those times, we can remember there was a time when the prophet Elijah, you remember the prophet Elijah? Pretty sure it was, the story was Elijah. There was a time when Elijah said, God, just take me out of here. These people are so disobedient. These people, I, there's not a one left that's obedient. And God told Elijah, you don't know it, but I have a remnant of 7,000 people in Israel who still trust in me. You imagine Elijah's thought, well, well, they're sure not around. I haven't been talking to them. I don't know where they're at. <laughs> so, uh, but, but God was saying to Elijah, I have a remnant. I always have a faithful remnant. So we know that time, the story, of, the story goes on, the story of God's people. They, they finally end up so disobedient, they become overtaken by foreign nations, become slaves, and in the process of time God allows them to be freed from that foreign captivity only to go back and resettle the land always to be a captive people in their own land finally but always to be a captive people you know for the the Babylonian the Assyrians the Babylonians the Medo-Persians the Greeks the Romans and we come to the time of Jesus and in the fullness of time 
God sends the Messiah to his people. And we know them as, by then, the Jewish people, okay, the nation of Israel. But now, after that nation rejects Jesus, they're disobedient again, and they crucify him, the Lord of life, and, and is rejected. We know that that's a part of God's plan, too, because that's how the church is born. The church is the, this, this group that we call the Christian church. Okay, It's born out of this elect people. The elect of God, some of them were still a remnant. Not every Jew rejected Jesus, did they? No. The very first Christians were all Jews. And we're in... What? That's right. We're And we're in Thessalonica now because we're in a Greek-Jewish mixed world. There are Jews living there with the Greeks, and we have a church now that's composed of both Jews and Greeks. And Paul is teaching them in this Thessalonian church, you are part of the elect. This is a doctrine of the faith. This is important stuff. You are part of the elect of God. You're part of God's covenant people is what he's saying. Now, what does that mean for the Jews? Believe it or not, there are Christian teachers who teach today theology that says that Israel, or I'm, I'm seriously speaking about the nation of Israel now, okay, the people, the Jewish people, and what we would today call the nation of Israel, but Jews are everywhere in the world. There is a Christian theology that says they are not necessary. They have been replaced by Christian and Christian Christians in the Christian church. And that this kind of theology is very dangerous if you hear anybody teaching it. It's, sometimes it's called replacement theology. There's a few other names for it. But it's very dangerous because it basically leads to the fact of the extermination of the Jews. Hitler believed it. Many have believed it. I mean, the Jews have... There have been world conquerors who have tried to stamp out the Jewish people over and over and over again. Okay? And they still want to today. And I think we need to be careful as we move forward in the balance of our lives. I don't know where we're headed. You know, I don't have a crystal ball. But I know there is a challenge to the churches of today. It's going to come. Because we're already being challenged to not be, to, 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 to not be faithful. And we're being challenged at our very core of what's true and what isn't true. And it might be there come a time we see it happening that some people will stop wanting to support the Jewish people who are Christians who want to stop supporting the Jewish people because they buy into that replacement theology. Jackie, a question? Oh, I don't know if you have anything to do with it. It was just, I have this friend that's spiritual. Uh Uh-huh. And you said crystal ball, and it just... Oh. (laughs) Yeah. It's very hard to explain. Mm Mm-hmm. How can two people like that get along? Two people like one that's... Christian. Christian and one that's... Yeah. Well, you, you don't, you don't, you don't, uh... You don't not get along with them just because they might be one of these crystal ball spiritualists or whatever we would call that kind of new age mysticism or something. You don't not get along with them, but you also don't align yourself with them. I mean, God calls us to love everyone, mm-hmm. uh, love everyone in the world, but He also tells us to be careful who we keep company with because those things can 
lead us down the wrong path if we're not if we're weak. One of the themes that'll come out as we study this is this book, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, as we refer back to different other books, is this whole idea in Paul's letters. There is a big theme about the weak and the strong, and we need to know which camp we're in and and what to do about that. Um, so let me take you forward now. Let's look at the New Testament uh, a little bit on this idea of the doctrine of election. What does this What does this have to do with? Uh, let's go to the book of Romans and talk a little bit about this idea of who the church, who these Thessalonian people are in the elect of God. And I think it's very important to understand that Paul believes the church of the, the church in Thessalonia, you know, this, the Thessalonica, all this, he believes the church is Israel. He uses those very words. The church is the new Israel. Okay, now, how can we say that? Well, let's look back at some scriptures in the book of Romans then that will shed some light on that. In, let's go to chapter 9, okay? In chapter 9, we hear this thought of, and, and those that teach a doctrine, that teach the doctrine of election in such a way that they believe that it's, it's kind of just an arbitrary choice of God. This is a big scripture for them. We're going we're gonna to look at why it's not, okay? But in this idea. So here, Paul is talking about the seed of Abraham. Okay, the seed of Abraham. We talked about that a little bit ago. The descendants of Abraham, in other words, or the Jewish people who were the descendants of Abraham. Paul is saying that now, uh, in, this, in this age, this new age of Christ, this time, that uh, it's not about the seed of Abraham in the flesh. Okay, it's about the seed of Abraham in the promise. So we'll begin reading in verse 6. It says this, But it is not the word of God, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. <laughs> it's kind of an oxymoronic thought there. But they are, not is, they are not all Israel who are Israel. He's saying, you know, who you think is Israel is really not who you think it is. Okay, you think it's just the Jewish people that can trace their roots all the way back to Abraham. Not so, Paul is saying. Nor are they, verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. So just because you're Jewish, just because you have a lineage that goes all the way back to Abraham doesn't make you a child of promise of, of God here he says I'm reading from the new King James version but in Isaac your seed shall be called and he's quoting scripture there that is those who are children of the flesh these are not the children of God but the children of the promise are counted as the seed so why does he refer to Isaac you remember Isaac uh, had two children with Rebekah and they were twins, and they were Jacob and Esau, right? We know them as Jacob and Esau. And who was born first? Esau. Esau, that's right. And the law stated that the firstborn was always to inherit everything. So the firstborn should be the big child of the promise here. Okay. But he, Paul is saying, not so. So he's gonna, we're going to read on a little. For this is the word, verse 9, for this is the word of the promise. Quote, at this time I will come and Sarah shall receive a son. 
And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children are not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, for that that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Okay? There's that word election. My sin. Not of works, but of him who calls. So it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, let's try and understand that if we can, because this is misunderstood by an awful lot of people and a lot of Christian teachers. God is definitely laying out an elect group of people. He's laying out for the world an elect group of people. And that elect group of people is not based on their physical uh, genetic lineage. It's based on being whether or not they're in or accepting of the promise. What promise? The promise of God to Abraham, that your descendants will be my people. And what Paul is saying here is your descendants are not just going to be genetic descendants. They're going to be whoever will accept my promise. And he says, I'm going to prove that to you because I'm going to take your genetic order and I'm going to mix it all up. And he told Rebecca and Isaac, he said, you know what? The, the older is going to serve the younger. That, that just wasn't done. That wasn't done. Okay. And so then it says, for it is written, uh, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, does that really mean to you that God hated Esau? No, if we go back into the Old Testament, we know that God, I mean, God actually, you remember the whole story, we don't have time for the whole story, but you know, Jacob ends up stealing the blessing, you know, uh, and God says, I'm going to take care of Esau. I'm going to make Esau the father of a great nation. God did bless Esau, just not as the kind of the father, if you will, of the promise, okay? Now, does God have a right to choose that and do that and change that if he wants to? Sure he does, because he's God. But the, the language that is used here about loving and hating should never be taken literally. Jesus himself teaches in the gospel, unless you hate your father, your mother, your brother, and your sister, you cannot follow me. So is God teaching us to go hate our parents, our siblings? No, he's not. The language is hyperbole. Okay. He's trying to show the drastic opposites here. You know, don't hate them, but don't love them more than me. Okay? And I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to reverse your whole order of society. I'm going to make the older serve the younger. Because I can do that because I'm God. I've got a plan for all of this. So why did he want to do that? Why? We're still back to the question of why are they who they are? Why would the older serve the younger? Well, let's go back one chapter to Romans 8. Okay, Romans chapter 8. We'll start reading in verse 28. And Paul says this, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, I could also read that verse to say, to those whom he foreknew, he also elected to be 
Okay, here's the doctrine of election right here. And it's more commonly called the doctrine of predestination. There's several places in the New Testament where Paul uses the word that we are predestined. Okay, and here's one of them. This is one of the most important ones. He uses it again in the book of Ephesians. It's used by Peter even. It's, it's used in several places in the New Testament. We have to accept that there is a doctrine of election. There's a doctrine of predestination. If we're going to be Orthodox Christians of under, rightly understanding, rightly teaching, okay? But what kind of predestination? How are we predestined? Why are we predestined? See, that how becomes really important. It is by God's sovereign choice, yes. But his sovereign choice is based on what he knows. That's why the order, whenever there's talk about predestination, be very careful in the Bible. Whenever you read it in the Bible, it always is in line with what God already knows. Why did God... So the the word here in in verse 29 is those whom he foreknew. Now, if Paul would have written... (laughs) If Paul would have written that backwards, if he would have said, those whom he predestined, he foreknew. It would have changed the whole meaning. You, You can't switch those words around. Okay? Then it's just an arbitrary choice. That is much of... There, there are some Christians that teach that. That, God, that we are predestined to either heaven or hell, uh, you know, to be part of the covenant, part of the elect, to not be part of the elect, and we're predestined, and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. That's a doctrine. I told you that's been a problem in Christianity ever since the Protestant Reformation. But hear this carefully. That was never a problem in the ancient church. Nobody understood an issue on the doctrine of election for 1,500 years because it was understood that we were children of the promise. And whoever accepted the promise is grafted into Israel. Okay? We become Israel. But in the the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Western church, okay, the Roman church, was reacting... It, 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 the, the Protestant reformers were reacting to Roman rule of the church in the Western world. And they were there was all kinds of issues about how we were saved and what made us saved. And if we were saved, did we have to, you know, what, what happens after we die? Did we go through a purgatory? There was all these issues. Rome had been the inventor of many new things, if you will, uh, that complicated the faith that... For just reason, many Protestants began to protest. Okay, that's the name Protestant. They began to protest this idea of salvation the way it was taught by Rome. And if Rome Rome seemed to be saying, well, you know, you can buy your salvation, you can earn your salvation, and, and I don't think that's fair, and this isn't a class on the Roman church, so we don't have time to fully critique that. But that's what it seemed like, okay? And so to people like John Calvin and, and Martin Luther and others, if that was what Rome was teaching, then as with most political type situations, where does the pendulum go? Just a little bit one way and a little bit the other? No. Pendulums always swing to extremes. And so they took that thought to an extreme. Not only can you not do anything to earn your salvation, your salvation was determined before the world ever began by God's sovereign choice. 
That became the teaching of John Calvin, predominantly. But it's, it doesn't square with Scripture. It doesn't, it's, okay, it's okay for me to, to understand that I'm, I'm predestined as long as I understand God knows the beginning from the end. You see? God knows. He, the Scripture here calls it foreknowledge. Really, it's just knowledge. You know, to God, remember what I've taught you, that God exists outside of time and space. God is the only eternal being. To God, God eternity is past, present, and future. He sees everything at once. He knows everything at once. You know, that's hard. We can't grasp that. We can enter into it by faith, but we can't grasp it because we're just timely created beings, okay? But it's important that we grasp it by faith because we want to believe in a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty, all-present. And in being that way, he knew that Jacob would be more faithful than Esau. And so he was going, he knew that the Jewish people would be, he would always be able to find a remnant. And he didn't know that about the Egyptian people. He did not, he knew who would do what and who wouldn't. And so before the world began, God created his plan for the world. We call that his providence, his plan for the world from beginning to end. Even the things that we haven't seen happen in time and space yet. God knows, God knew. And he built his plan for the world based on those things. And they include our human freedom to either choose the promise or not choose the promise. To choose to be elect or to not be elect. So, how do I... Could I take you one more verse in the book of Romans? Very important. Go over to Romans 11 with me. Just a couple more chapters. Paul's not through talking about this idea of being chosen by God. So, he says in verse 11, he says, I say then, this chapter 11, verse 1, sorry. I say then, has God cast away his people? Okay, he'd been talking about the, the uh, Jacob and Esau thing, and it seemed like the, the Jewish people were lost. Uh, and he says, what shall I say then? Has God cast away his people? That meaning the, the Jews. Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite. I'm a Jew, Paul is saying. I'm of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew. There's that word again. God has not cast them away. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I alone and left, they seek my life too. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We just talked about that. Now, verse 5, even so then, at this present time, that means when Paul is talking to the Roman church through his letter, similar to the times, the New Testament times, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. A remnant of who? A remnant of God's chosen Jewish people, right? Of who Paul is one of them. He's talking about himself. I'm part of that remnant. I'm Jewish, but I'm Christian. Yes, Kent? The, uh, in Revelations, the chosen, 144,000 were chosen in the Jewish nation from the Jewish Israelites. There's a symbolism there between yeah. the 12,000 times yeah. 12. That's right. There's a symbolism there. 
So he goes on and says, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. I love that. There is an election according. So when we say, who are they? We say they're all children of the promise, not children of the seed. When we say, why are they? We say, because it's according to God's knowledge. And when we say, how are they? We say, it's according to grace. And what is grace? Grace is the the love of God, the favor of God poured out upon us, things that we can't deserve and don't deserve. Okay? But he says, but if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. In the old covenant, in the old covenant, it was about work. Keep this law, the law of Moses. Okay? In the new covenant, Jesus says, I fulfilled that. The new covenant isn't, doesn't do away with the old law. It's just fulfilled in Jesus. And you and I have no way we can perfectly fulfill that law, just like every Jew could not fulfill that law. But in Jesus Christ, in our Savior, in faith in Him, in Him, we can fulfill the law. Not the law of Moses, the greater law, the law of love. And Paul's going to go on to say that in chapter 13, right here in chapter 13, the same letter. But right now, I'm not finished with 11. So jump ahead with me. He says, uh, verse 7, Why then Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So he's telling us now, there's Israel, the old Jews, and there's the elect. Now let's go on and see how he redefines this. In verse 16, jump ahead to verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. What is he saying here? He's saying that Israel is like an olive tree, the old Israel. Okay? The roots and all. Okay? The big olive tree is Israel, the original Israel. And he's saying some of those branches were broken off because they were disobedient and they didn't believe. But he's saying, you know what? You, you're wild olive trees. You're not Jewish olive trees. You're Gentile olive trees. But God has grafted you in. He didn't say he started a new group, a new tree. He didn't go plant a new tree or choose his favor from the old tree to this new Gentile wild tree. No, he says you are grafted in. So who are we grafted into? We're grafted into Israel. Listen to me as he goes a little further. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. (laughs) That's true. Verse 23 says, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to. I guess I shouldn't have skipped there. Let's go back. So verse 20, well said, because of unbelief, they, meaning the Jews, were broken off and you stand by faith. But don't be haughty or meaning don't be proud of that, but be fearful. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell Severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness. That's a big if there. If you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. 
And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted back in, for God is able to graft them in again. I think this is so important. This image is so important to understand the doctrine of election. There's only one tree, okay? There's only one tree, and it's the original tree, the people of God. It was just Jews. Now it's Jews that believe in Jesus, and it's all the Gentiles grafted in that have accepted the promise through Jesus, and it's all of this together. And he's saying, be careful, because just as those branches have been broken off and grafted in, you can be broken off too if you don't. If you don't. If he says, if you don't persevere, if you don't stay faithful, if you don't stay obedient. So uh, there's so much here that I think is important for us to understand the mind of these these Thessalonian Christians. They're being taught the gospel. They're being taught this whole first chapter of Thessalonians is how Paul teaches the gospel. He's teaching them that you were chosen. Is all these things, you know, he's... He doesn't write the whole treatise of Romans again in the book of Thessalonians. This is just a letter. But we, we know that in his time there with them, he taught them these things. Because we see them in other letters that he's written. So they were being taught that the gospel is the promise for everyone. Jew and Gentile alike. And you've been grafted in. And, and then he goes from there, from that whole thought. And I, I guess I wanted you to see that uh, one, one, the only... One more verse there is in in chapter 13 of Romans. Paul actually says, you know, um, in verse 10 of chapter 13, he says, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, the law of God that we are to be obedient to is the law of love, not the law of Moses. The old people... The Old Testament people had to be obedient to the law of Moses because the love of God had not been poured out in its fullness yet, which is Jesus Christ made flesh, our Savior who died for us, who conquered death for the world. Okay, Once that love had been poured out and fulfilled, now the law is the law of love that we obey. And Jesus says that when... And really, that was always God's plan. Okay, That was always God's plan. In Jesus, when they asked him and they tried to trick him and they said, what's the greatest law, teacher? What did he say? The, law, the greatest law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He was quoting Deuteronomy. That's always been. To love God has always been the law. But it's not love God and then do the law of Moses. Jesus goes in the second one is just like it. Love God and then love everybody else. Even Jesus was telling us the law of God has always been the law of love. It was the law of love back then. They just couldn't do it. Why couldn't those Old Testament people be as loving as we Christians are supposed to be? Notice I didn't say as we Christians are. (laughs) Because sadly, we're not. Too many times. But why couldn't they be that loving? Why couldn't they just accept the law of love way back in the book of Deuteronomy? Because Christ had not come. The fullness of the plan had not come. The, the, The gift of the Holy Spirit had not come. Death had not been defeated yet. All of these things. You and I cannot fulfill the law of love by ourselves. We are just we are just as ineffective as the Jewish people were with the law of Moses. You think they kept that law? I mean, did they keep that dietary law perfect? Did they do all those things, not touch this, not touch that? Not at all. They failed constantly. 
And every year they had to go confess it, and every year they had to be the blood of a lamb had to be shed and for, sprinkled and forgiven for them over and over and over and over. And we do the same thing. We fail. But the good news is the Lamb of God, the one true Lamb of God, God himself in human form, was slain for our sins and for our forgiveness. So that we now, by the gift of his indwelling power, don't have to fall. We don't have to fall. In our human weakness, we might, but we don't have to because we, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, have been empowered. And that's what he's teaching them. You are part of the elect. How are they going to persevere in hope? Because they know they're part of the elect. That's how they're going to persevere in hope. That's how they are, let me say that, persevering as he's writing this letter. They're in the midst of great struggle, but they're persevering. So let's finish the last couple of verses in Verse 5, he says, for our God, this is back to 1 Thessalonians now. Enough of Romans and all that Old Testament stuff. I'm sorry to confuse you, but I just, there's so much to get in here, okay? you got to connect both parts. So back to Thessalonians, verse 5. For our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It wouldn't be enough, if anybody ever tells you that Christianity is just a series of doctrines to be lived out. They're missing everything. No, it isn't. It's a life to be lived in the power of the Spirit. And that's what he's telling them. We came to you, not just with, we didn't come to just teach you a catechism. We didn't come with a scroll with all the things. If you just do these, think on these things and believe them, you're okay. No, we demonstrated the gospel to you with a life lived out with mighty work. He says with works. Not only in word, but in demonstration of power in the Holy Spirit. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly what all those things are, but we can imagine that maybe somebody was healed in their congregation, that there was mighty works of God, miracles done. We, we read in other places where the apostles worked mighty miracles because of the indwelling power and as a testimony to the gospel. Uh, and he's saying, you know that, that's how we came to you. And he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Why does he say, why does he feel the need to remind them? You know what kind of people we were among you. If you go back to our overview lesson, one of the things I was teaching you there was one of the reasons Paul's writing this letter is he's having to defend himself. Paul's having to defend himself. Because somebody, these probably these Jewish irritators or and even the civil ones, they're trying to tear Paul's reputation down. Well, you guys don't want to believe in him. You know, you don't want to do that. He's not that great a teacher. You know, he's hypocrite this and hypocrite that. There's somebody's tearing him down, him and Timothy and uh, Sylvanus, all of them. But he's saying, no, that's not true. You know what kind of people we were, that we proved ourselves to be among you. And verse 6, very important. And so you became, notice the past tense of that, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. We've talked about that. They were in great affliction when they received the gospel, but yet with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's two things in that verse that we want to break apart. Before we close today, I, I want to break them apart real quick for you. And that is this idea of, 
Paul said, you became imitators of us. So the Greek word here used is mimetes. Mimetes. You can hear maybe the word we would call mimic in that, that root, okay? Mimetes. It means to literally imitate, okay? Paul didn't say, you just followed us. You imitated us. I could follow you, but not do as you do, right? I could just follow your teachings. I can follow what you do. But follow isn't a strong enough word here. He needed to say, you imitated us. In other words, we fasted, so you fasted. We prayed this way, so you prayed this way. We worshiped here and then, and so you worship here and then. You see what he's teaching them? He's reminding them, you became imitators of us. And, he says, of the Lord Jesus. Now, another place when Paul's writing, I believe it's in the first Corinthian letter, he tells people, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, that's bold. It was bold of him to teach them, hey, do as I do. How how many of us feel confident enough in our Christian faith this morning that we're so confident in ourselves that we're such great teachers and imitators of the life of Christ that we could say to those we're discipling, why don't you just do as I do? (laughs) I'm not. I'm not teaching you from that point of view up here today. I, I wish I could. I, I really wish I could. I wish I were. I wish I were teaching you from that standpoint. I, I strive to want to be that kind of saint, but I'm not. But I want to be. And that's what he's saying. So I think there's something for us to learn here. It's important for us to have role models. That, that's what the saints are. The apostles were the very first, if you will, of the saints. And all through the ages, there's been great saints. There's still great saints today. And, and get, I, got a, I got a secret for you here. There's many saints in the world, not just the ones the churches have recognized over the years. Most of them have never been recognized. Most of them are just people humbly living out their lives. Are and some of them angels? Who knows? Maybe every now and then God uses an angel. It says in the scriptures that he uses an angel and that we entertain them unaware of who they are. But I think the point here is that there are so many people. When you meet somebody that's incredibly spiritual, that's incredibly humble, and you want to be like them, that's a good thing. Okay? We need the example. And that's why I think we've lost, our heritage has lost, many Protestants, not all, but many Protestants, particularly evangelicals, don't have a heritage of studying the lives of the saints of history, the history of the church. You know, some of the people that I refer to here, like St. John Chrysostom or St. Whoever. We don't, we just don't. We, again, evangelicalism was so caught up in the need to spread the gospel and just get people to believe that it's, it's missed some of that foundation. But that's being rediscovered more and more in the evangelical movement. More and more of that, that's being discovered. And that's a good thing. We need to have these kind of examples to follow. Well, I didn't get to the thought of joy. How about if we pick up on joy next week? Because how about if we don't? The joy is to eat your Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) I'm glad you reminded me that because I knew I'd forget. Um, Yeah, the joy that we would. So we're going to pick up in two weeks with this thought of the joy. He Paul ends with this thought. He says, with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, you endured much affliction. Boy, enduring affliction and joy just seem like opposites, don't they? I mean, how many? How can we joy in our affliction? Well, we'll pick up on that after Thanksgiving. So be thankful for. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the opportunity to teach with you, and uh, 
thankful for you. Continue to pray for Sylvia, who I believe will be back with us one day. She's rehabbing. Uh, did Joan leave you one? What is it? Her brother, Mark Stearman, was oh. back last spring. Okay. He did have a lung transplant last spring. But that has gone not so bad. Oh, no. And he had another lung transplant Wednesday morning, yesterday. Yesterday. Uh, replaced them. Replacing the one that was replaced last spring. Okay. Um, he's still in ICU at the city of Oklahoma City. Right. He may need the left lung replaced in the near future because it's not working at all. Did he have both lungs replaced originally? Back originally in spring. Both. Now, okay. So did you all hear that? Let's add that to our prayer list. Joan's brother, Mark Stearman, who lives in Oklahoma City. A great Bible teacher, by the way. I think um, he's here, but he's or lives here, maybe. He's a he's a he's a great Bible teacher, a good Christian man. He had a double lung transplant back in the spring, that's gone bad, and they had to replace a lung just yesterday. So, uh, but he's in ICU and needs prayers. So let's continue. Pray for Sylvia. Pray for him. Pray for anybody you see missing that's not here. I know people can't always make it from week to week, but let's remember one another. And if you see him in the hallways at church, encourage him to come. Jump in on our study of Thessalonians. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we are thankful people. We want to express that thanks to you now. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these that are here. Thank you for your divine providence of election. Thank you for knowing the end from the beginning and knowing everything that will happen. And thank you for sharing your love and your mercy and your grace with us. And I pray now for these that we've mentioned, for Sylvia and for Mark, that your divine touch would be upon us restoring them to new health. And Father, we give you all the praise through Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son, our Savior, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry, and I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today, and may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as He forms His Spirit within you.